doctors, of course, played a role in creating the opiate epidemic that killed 72,000 Americans in 2017. And in my view, they haven't still, to this day, really stepped up to play a role in responding to that crisis. And then that's happening in Canada uh, as well as in America. Um, and I think that's why we haven't seen hydromorphone made more widely available, because you need doctors willing to take on this sort of specialized program, and sadly not many are. listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. With perhaps the exception of fentanyl, no drug is seen as more dangerous or deadly than heroin. The U.S. classifies it in Schedule 1, alongside drugs deemed by the DEA to have zero medical value. But when you look at the decades of medical literature, it's clear that heroin, aka diacetylmorphine, is just another opioid. And like all opioids, it has its place in medicine. Around the world, doctors actually prescribe heroin to their patients. I'm Zachary Siegel, broadcasting from Chicago, Illinois, and you're listening to Narcotica. Also joining me is co-host Troy Farah, transmitting from the high desert in California. What's up, Troy? Hey, how's it going? Today, we're going to be talking with journalist Travis Lupik, author of Fighting for Space. Travis is hailing from Canada. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you on, man. Uh, We wanted to dedicate this segment to a treatment for opioid use disorder that sounds radical, but when you look at over two decades of research, it's clearly a strategy that will help us save as many lives as possible in the overdose crisis. Um, We're talking about injectable opioid agonist therapy, otherwise known as heroin-assisted treatment, or injectable hydromorphone treatment. It's totally, at least in this moment, illegal in the U.S. for doctors to prescribe these drugs to people with opioid addictions. Travis, we wanted to bring you on because in your book, you chronicle harm reduction activism in Canada. Uh, You've done a ton of research about harm reduction and drug use centered treatments have gained ground there. Can you talk about this strategy? Yeah, in in Fighting for Space, I recount Vancouver, Canada's experience with harm reduction from our early days with needle exchange in the late late 1980s, early 1990s, through to the establishment of North America's first supervised injection facility, Insight, in 2003. And then towards the end of the book, I get into what I sort of call Vancouver's next steps with harm reduction. And perhaps our biggest next step is prescription heroin, uh, better known in the medical community by its pharmaceutical term, diacetylmorphine. Diacetylmorphine has a small but very uh, significant um, role in Vancouver harm reduction. It began in 2005 in a clinical study called Naomi, the North American Opiate Medication Initiative. And from 2005 to 2008, prescription heroin was given to a small group of patients at a clinic in Vancouver's downtown east side in a blind trial. This was a a really, um, this was a group of um, real entrenched addiction. The average number of years that a study participant had spent on heroin was 15, and the average number of times they had failed with traditional treatments, such as abstinence or methadone, was 11. 
So, like I said, you know, these were tough addictions uh, that had um, not experienced success with other more traditional forms of treatment. And Naomi tried to, Naomi said, okay, nothing else has worked. Let's try prescription heroin and let's see what happens. And they found what happens was this group that was receiving prescription heroin stayed in treatment. That ran from 2005 to 2008. A couple years passed after Naomi concluded, and then Vancouver, at the same clinic, organized a second study called Salome. Salome essentially tried to see if the first study's findings could be replicated and added a second drug into the mix, one you mentioned earlier, hydromorphone, better known by its brand name Dilaudid. This is a drug, another opiate, very similar to heroin, and so Salome looked at how well Prescription heroin worked at keeping people in treatment again, and also looked at how well injection hydromorphone worked at keeping people in treatment. And in that second study, similar to the first, uh, the results were really excellent. These, these drugs did a great job at keeping participants in treatment. And also, one thing that's interesting about those two trials, so these are like randomized, well, the second one you're talking about, Salome, is randomized, and the users, they couldn't so they're blind, and they really couldn't distinguish between hydromorphone and heroin. Is that right? Like, like these advanced users, you know, didn't know what they were getting, but still found it uh, effective, right? That's right, and that's really significant. It, it might not sound like it, but it's really significant, and here's why. Um, even in Canada, you know, progressive Canada, uh, the reputation goes, Prescription heroin is a very difficult thing to deliver. Um, it's been available at this one clinic in Vancouver on a trial basis since 2005, and then outside a trial basis since 2014. But prescription heroin has never been available anywhere in Canada or North America beyond this one clinic, Crosstown Clinic, at the corner of East Hastings and Abbott. And that's because... Well, technically, we do have the legal mechanisms to provide people with prescription heroin in Canada. It's just a bureaucratic nightmare. Um, of course, it's still illegal to produce the drug in Canada, so we have to order it special from Switzerland. For every single patient who a doctor wants to give this drug to, they need to apply for special status, uh, a special exemption from Canadian drug laws with the federal government, and they need to file more forms to import the drug for each patient uh, from Switzerland, Then they have to redo that every six months, or, or I think it's about the two a year now, um, over and over again. So while prescription, prescription heroin can be done in Canada, it's not easy, to say the least. So... So in Salome, when we found that hydromorphone works almost as well, and for most patients, um, cannot even uh, they can't even tell the difference, uh, that was huge. And what it led to is um, it allowed Canadian doctors to finally scale up this sort of treatment, to finally make it available beyond this one clinic. And since uh, over the last couple of years, uh, that's finally what we've been doing, making injection hydromorphone available as an alternative to people who have failed with more traditional treatments, such as methadone or abstinence. Uh, I think one of the things we want to dispel on this program is that heroin is not this big, scary drug. Uh, yes, it can be dangerous, but like any substance, it can be used responsibly, uh, which is controversial. I don't want to come across as, you know, saying that we're pro-heroin or everybody should be doing heroin, but there's this mythology about drug use, that these chemicals are unequivocally evil, which is unscientific. It's literally just a chemical, um, and it, it has good and bad things about it, and, and, and we should balance those things. And it's, 
you see in Europe that this has been a pretty effective strategy to prescribe heroin um, in some of these cases to, for treating opioid use disorder. Uh, one of the questions I have, though, is like, what makes heroin or hydromorphone uh, better than some of the some of the opioid agonist therapies that uh, are accepted and the accepted is a weird word because they're not that widely accepted, but I'm talking about methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. There's still a lot of stigma against people who use these drugs, but why is heroin or hydromorphone uh, more effective or, or, or why should it be more of an option? Well, I don't, I don't think necessarily um, it is more effective for everybody, and I wouldn't call it better for everybody. Um, this is a question of tools in the toolbox. Um, an opiate addiction is a very difficult thing to bring under control, especially after someone's struggled with an opiate addiction for many years. And not everybody is going to find um, abstinence the same way. So we want as many tools in the toolbox as possible. You mentioned quite a few of them already, uh, methadone, naltrexone. Methadone will work for some people. Abstinence will work for some people. Naltrexone will work for some people. Suboxone will work for some people. And for others, uh, diacetylmorphine, prescription heroin, uh, or hydromorphone will work. Um, so it, this is a tough problem, and I think, and, and so we want as many different options as possible to help people with this problem. And offering diacetylmorphine and hydromorphone um, are two more options that, for a small group, uh, seems to work very well. Right, and I think it's also worth reiterating what you said a moment ago that in the initial trials of um, diacetylmorphine, the average length of time um, that the user or patient was addicted was like over a decade, right? And so 15 years at least. Yeah, these are people who are probably middle-aged or older and have had um, have their bodies have been habituated to opioids over decades, and I think that's a unique uh, population. And you know, if someone is 18 years old and they've been, I don't know, uh, smoking black tar heroin for a few months and they're trying to kick their habit, like that's not someone who is probably a good candidate for injectable uh, diacetylmorphine, right? Well, that's a very interesting question because the answer to this question has changed in recent years. The patient population at Crosstown Clinic that receives prescription heroin is definitely older. Um, like I said, as you, uh, most of them have spent more than 15 years of injecting heroin. But as we've expanded access to injection hydromorphone in Vancouver, there's now a couple hundred people in Vancouver receiving injection hydromorphone, We've lowered the bar quite significantly and are continuing to lower the bar, making injection hydromorphone available to younger and younger patients and making it uh, more widely available to patients who have not spent so many years injecting opiates. And the reason uh, that that's changed is fentanyl and now carfentanil. These dangerous synthetic opiates have adulterated Vancouver's drug supply so completely that uh, our, our overdose crisis, our numbers of overdose deaths, uh, have, have reached heights that were just previously unimaginable. And that's led a couple doctors in Vancouver to reassess where the bar is for these intensive treatments, injection hydromorphone. And to spare people um, from fentanyl, we're now making injection hydromorphone available to patients who we might not have just a few years ago. And so that gets into sort of like the safe supply movement I've been hearing about. Exactly. A movement that's very strong in Vancouver right now. 
Uh, Naomi and Salome, the prescription heroin trials, were all about stabilizing the lives of long-time entrenched uh, people who were addicted to drugs. This sort of second phase with the expansion of, of access to hydromorphone, it's not so much about stabilizing people's lives, it's about saving people's lives. Um, so many people are overdosing in Vancouver that our policymakers and politicians are increasingly desperate to try new things, anything that might save some of these people's lives. And so we're lowering the bar on access to injectable opiates uh, that, are, that are distributed under regulation under the government. I get the feeling, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, that even for some people that are pretty pro-drugs, you know, pro-ending the war on drugs, pro-ending uh, prohibition, that this is still kind of a hard sell to say prescription heroin. That How would that help people? Um, but I think part of the argument is, is that, uh, you know, it really does put drug dealers out of business um, if if there's availability of these drugs uh, safe alter safer alternatives um you know it's not cut with something it's it's a measured dose it, you're usually uh, some of these programs um they only allow you to use the drug under medical supervision um whereas all the supply side interventions whereas you can keep trying to bust people for for ad infinitum and then it won't make any progress uh can we talk a little bit about how this kind of like defangs the black market a little bit? Absolutely. There, the, the goals of the, of the initial studies were stabilization. The, the goals of the expansion of access to hydromorphone is saving people's lives. But there's been some really fascinating unintended consequences that have come with these programs. Um, medical professionals involved with Crosstown Clinic found once someone was receiving a regulated supply, a precise dose of a known substance, there were all sorts of benefits that, that, then they, that they, had not, um, they had not anticipated, that they had not planned for. Once people were removed from the hustle, once they were no longer interacting with dealers, once they were no longer you know, scrounging through trash bins for recyclable items or um, stealing and vending on the street or for many women um, engaging in sex work, um, once these patients were no longer involved in those activities, all sorts of things started to happen. All sorts of really positive developments began to happen to their lives. Um, people had time. Um, t time is really what became key here. They had time to reconnect with family. And they had time to find stable housing. Um, you know, an addiction to opiates is a full-time job. That's a 60-hour work week for, for a lot of people. So after Crosstown Clinic patients had that 60 hours back, um, they were able to do other things with it. And for some of them, after six months, a year, for some two years, um, they were able to rejoin the legitimate economy and they've returned to the workforce. And Crosstown Clinic patients who have received three injections of, of prescription heroin uh, every day for many years now um, go to work every day as well. And I think that underscores that, you know, heroin is not necessarily the dangerous part, it's prohibition. It's putting people in these uh, situations that cause them to share syringes, to use alone and overdose, uh, to have uh, dealers cut drugs to, to make a quick buck uh, by putting in more dangerous or unpredictable chemicals. I mean, that's, that's very much the more philosophical discovery uh, at Crosstown Clinic. Um, researchers and the doctors working there found that it was not the drug heroin that was hurting these people. 
it was the laws that made heroin illegal that was hurting them. And once they were receiving a legal dose of heroin, all of those harms disappeared. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty remarkable looking at the outcomes for these trials. And one that you kept mentioning was treatment retention. And with with methadone, with buprenorphine, um, the, the two agonists that are legal here in the U.S., I think it's about there's maybe in all the studies, the repeated finding is like 40 percent of people um, really. I mean, these drugs don't work for them, like even, even having a 60 percent, 60 percent of the, the groups experiencing positive outcomes is a great thing. And that's way better than some of the older approaches. But still, that's a large chunk of people, 40%, who don't find that these drugs are effective. And so that there's something else on the table for them that not only works, but really goes a couple steps further and um, helps them get back into the world in a, in a different way, right? Like you're saying, it's time, it's, it's employment, it's these sort of more amorphous things that that we can't really measure that are the real benefits. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say here that this is a program that I was skeptical of when I first um, took an interest in it uh, five or six years ago now. Um, really, you're going to give people addicted to heroin free heroin? How's that going to help? Um, but I've spent a lot of time at Crosstown Clinic since then. I've visited many times, and I've stayed in close touch um, with, with 10 or 15 participants, uh, you know, chatting with them at least on the phone, but often seeing them in person um, every six months to every year for, for uh, five or six years now. And the differences that uh, I've seen these people make in their lives with my own eyes um, are, are just remarkable. Um, actually, we'll take a step back. Uh, tr Troy... Uh, a few minutes ago, you know, mentioned sort of the, the Hollywood stigma around heroin as this, this dirty drug and, and sort of stigmatized perceptions of it like that. Um, my experiences at Crosstown Clinic uh, are entirely different. When I watch someone inject heroin at Crosstown Clinic, their eyes don't roll back in their head. There's no look of euphoria that comes over their face. Uh, they don't nod off. Um, these are people who are receiving a maintenance dose, a precise dose of a known substance. Um, they're, and after they inject it, um, they stand up with clear eyes and they walk out the door and they go on with their day. As I mentioned earlier, some of them go to work. Um, this is not sort of the the Hollywood burnout version of heroin. Um, these are these are people who are once again uh, functional. Like you said, it, it is kind of counterintuitive to me as well uh, at first when I first heard of this idea. Uh, you know, but a long time ago, I wasn't even in favor of legalizing heroin in any capacity. It, it takes it takes a while to become comfortable with this idea because we are saturated with with so much propaganda in, in mainstream media and, and from the police and everything that these are drugs that can don't do no good, uh, which is absurd because clearly, as you've witnessed, heroin can do positive things. I was won over reluctantly. I was won over slowly. Um, and only after visiting the clinic and getting to know uh, patients myself. Um, but, but, you know, now, now that I have, um, there is no clearer um, evidence, I believe, that it is not the drugs that do the most harm to a person, 
but the drug war and prohibition than the changes I've seen in people's lives at Crosstown Clinic. When prohibition is removed from the drug, these people do really well. And so when it comes to how this all came about in Canada, and and we talked a bit about this with Garth Mullins from the Crackdown pod, you know, like... A friend of mine. Right. What what Garth is doing with Crackdown is just amazing right now. Amazing work. They are killing it. It's amazing. And, And one thing that we talked about, and you even sort of jokingly alluded to this a minute ago, is like this progressive veneer that Canada has, at least among people in America, like Canada is just like this sort of bastion of, of, of socialized medicine, of, of friendlier drug policies and treatments. And I think that in a lot of ways overlooks how many hard fights and activism and organizing that really pushed these policies in the right direction. And that's what your book uh, fighting for space really chronicles and i was wondering if we could take a few steps back and sort of talk about how this did begin to get acceptance because as the three of us know we're journalists we're reporters facts aren't enough to sway people like evidence isn't enough to change people's minds like it takes uh, a lot of people working together to make policy changes to to enact rational science-based policy. So can you talk a little bit about um, some of the the fights, the organizing, the activism that that helped get this on the table? Right. Canada and um, and Vancouver especially really pats itself on the back for how progressive a place it is and how far it's taken harm reduction and how we're the home of North America's first and for many years only supervised injection facility. I really have to roll my, my, my eyes at, at those pats on the back sometimes because for many, many years, politicians and policymakers in Vancouver wanted nothing to do with harm reduction and fought against it as hard as they could. The story of harm reduction in Vancouver is a story of activism. It's a story of grassroots activism, um, of people who were homeless, of people who were addicted to drugs saying, we want a say in drug policy. We want a say in government decisions that affect us. And we're not going to let you say no to us anymore. And that was not an easy or a short battle. The story I tell in Fighting for Space, uh, a big piece of it is, is the establishment um, of Insight of North America's first supervised injection facility. And that story uh, stretches over nearly 15 years and 300 pages of this 400-page book. So it was not easy, and nothing was given to activists. Uh, they took it. This was members of the Vancouver Area Network, Network of Drug Users, uh, better known by its acronym VANDU, and uh, nonprofit uh, allies such as the Portland Hotel Society, a big housing agency that provides housing, uh, housing first uh, housing uh, to a lot of people who struggle with addiction and mental illnesses in Vancouver. These groups and activists and allies and parents who had lost children to drug overdoses, they came together through the 90s, through the early 2000s, and they said, uh, we don't want you marginalizing drug users anymore, and we don't want you treating this as a criminal issue, we, and we want to say. Um, and even after they won, um, 2003, the establishment of Insight is often 
viewed as sort of the, the moment of victory for harm reduction in Vancouver. But even after they quote-unquote won, uh, that fight continued. Uh, the federal government took Insight to court, and it continued all the way to 2011 when Insight was finally declared legal in the Supreme Court of Canada. That that's, that's, that one struggle that began in the early, early 1990s uh, finally um, reached its conclusion. So, you know, to, to the amazing people working on this in Philadelphia right now and in Seattle um, and in New York, um, you know that this can be done, but it is not going to be easy. The struggle to establish insight was a 20-year 20 20 battle. Where do you see programs like this expanding? Like in Canada, it's mostly just pilot programs. It's still kind of a small thing, right? What, what, where do you see... Uh, is there more of this on the horizon? More prescription heroin research on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's um, exactly right. It, these programs still have largely um, been confined to academic trials and, and, and studies, um, which, again, sort of bucks that uh, perception of Canada as such a progressive place. Um, prescription heroin in Vancouver moved outside of a clinical trial in 2014. And in 2019, it still is only offered to the same 100 grandfathered patients at that one facility on East Hastings Street, um, hydromorphone has been prescribed in an off-label basis for the treatment of an opiate addiction um, beyond Crosstown Clinic in Vancouver for several years now, but never beyond Vancouver. Um, it's still just a couple of hundred people across the country that are receiving uh, injection hydromorphone, and it's not across the country. It's all in Vancouver. So Progressive Canada, why aren't these programs that have been proven to work expanding further? That's a complicated question. Um, uh, a big part of the answer is that local jurisdictions don't always want these facilities in their neighborhoods. Um, harm reduction is different than every every single other aspect of health care um, for some reason in that we give local governments uh, a say in where these health care initiatives can be established. Um, and a lot of them say they don't want them in their neighborhoods. Uh, a more complicated answer, I think, is internalized stigma um, within healthcare professions and among doctors, which is ironic because, uh, especially in America, but also to an extent in Canada, doctors, of course, played a role in creating the opiate epidemic that killed 72,000 Americans in 2017. And in my view, they haven't still, to this day, really stepped up to play a role in responding to that crisis. And then that's happening in Canada uh, as well in, as in America. Um, and I think that's why we haven't seen hydromorphone made more widely available, because you need doctors willing to take on this sort of specialized program. And sadly, not many are. So doctors in America, they currently cannot prescribe uh, methadone to patients with opioid use disorders. Like there are so many regulations and barriers to for doctors to be able to, like you're saying, sort of step up and tackle the problem that they arguably played a part in starting in the first place. And and so, you know, doctors can prescribe methadone for pain, but they can prescribe it to people with opioid use disorders. And then that gets into this whole bureaucratic system of methadone clinics, which whole other episode for a whole other topic. But like you're saying, I, I do hear drug users in the US sort of, I don't know, they're not too happy with doctors who 
won't give them a script or who think that doctors should be bucking the system and stepping up and prescribing the drugs that they know people need. And that's a really interesting thing to, to see, uh, to, to witness going on right now. I mean, this is, this is just outright insanity. We allow doctors to prescribe Oxycontin and Dilaudid, the drugs that get people addicted to opiates, without any, any real special requirements. And then we do not allow them to easily prescribe methadone or other drugs that could help those addicted people, those people who they got addicted in some instances, uh, get off those drugs. Um, it's just crazy. I don't think that there's any research going on like this in the U.S. Um, and I think that's interesting. Um, I recently did a piece for Discover Magazine on how difficult it is to study uh, narcotics because of the Controlled Substances Act. Um, Same situation in Canada. Yeah. Uh, I spoke to an Italian researcher, um, and he mentioned that uh, be, to get around the Schedule One um, restrictions uh, to study heroin, they'll just substitute, you know, other drugs uh, that are lower on the, the the act, such as you know they'll use morphine, they use fentanyl, they use oxycodone. These are different opioid drugs; they have different mechanisms. And he did some research that came out in 2018 in the Journal of Neuropharmacology, um, and it basically showed that, you know, diacetylmorphine breaks down into morphine and 6-acetylmorphine, and 6-AM is this metabolite, uh, which is psychoactive on its own, and it can cause reinforcement in rats. I mean, there, there needs to be more research here, but if you're using a different chemical to study how opioid addiction works and you're not going for actual heroin, it can impact the quality of research. And I think... That is holding back this idea of prescription heroin because, um, because in in scientific research in the United States at least we're not using the actual chemical we're using substitutes, and that can have profound implications when we're trying to solve a disorder as complicated as an opiate addiction. Um, we, we began this conversation um, with talk about hydromorphone and diacetylmorphine as tools in the toolbox, and I was really emphasizing, you know different drugs, methadone for some, hydromorphone for others, um, different drugs work really differently with different people. Um, so, you know, even though morphine is similar to heroin, um, when, when we're not actually allowed to study heroin, that that really shuts the door on, on meaningful research. There, there was actually a, a really decent, really good New York Times piece about how heroin is disappearing in, in cities like Baltimore, like Chicago, and uh, and in New York, and in a lot of these areas, um, the the population using it, uh, they're older African Americans, and and um, in a lot of these cases, what what it's clear in the in the latest CDC data here that the uh, the death rate in in black communities is rising steeper and faster than in sort of the rural white areas that are sort of always called the epicenter of the quote opioid epidemic and i feel like in america what is so desperately needed for people who really do meet the the criteria for uh heroin assisted treatment and are great candidates these people who have been using for decades and now they're dropping like flies because the the potency 
in the supply is so much more potent because of fentanyl. So it's, it's just really sad. And, it, and it's just more um, reason to, to really push this idea for a safe supply. It's, it's um, you know, it, to me, it's just like, this is why we need a safe supply. And it's uh, just so, I think, absurd and insane and cruel that drugs that we know could be saving lives are, are held back. And it's not even really a question. It's just like me being fucking infuriated about the situation here. Yeah, you had um, Eliza Wheeler on your show uh, a couple of weeks ago, and she made a point about fentanyl test strips that really stuck with me. Um, she says she said something like, you know, who even cares about the arguments that fentanyl test strips saves lives? This should be about a- a- autonomy and a drug user's right to know what they are putting in their own body. Um, fentanyl has really, you know, it's always been dangerous to, to be addicted to opiates, but, but fentanyl has, has really changed that, that risk level um, in such profound ways. Uh, and, um, and I think we're just starting to learn about all the different ways that that's manifesting itself. Um, you know, like you said, it's, it's older... Um, er- older heroin addicts um, among African-American community- communities that are dying really without much attention at all beyond that one, one New York Times article and a couple of others over the years. Another piece about fentanyl that, that I've been thinking about lately that I think is very sad um, is that many people who use opiates do so for, for very good reasons. Um, as a friend of mine, Dr. Gabor Mate, uh, author of In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, um, he says that uh, opiate use is a rational response to an irrational situation, by which he means things like sexual abuse, uh, child abuse, and a mother whose children have been taken from her. We forget that a lot of people who are using opiates are not using opiates for fun, but to to self-medicate very real uh, psychological pain. And something that a lot um, of drug users in Vancouver's downtown east side have told me is that fentanyl no longer helps them treat that pain. Um, it, it doesn't have the, the warm hug um, or the blanket effect that you so often um, hear described of heroin. Um, Fentanyl is very good at eliminating withdrawal symptoms. Um, If you're addicted to heroin and you don't want to go into physical withdrawal, um, you can take fentanyl and it will entirely curb those withdrawal symptoms. But a lot of people have told me that fentanyl doesn't have that that hug. And if you're using opiates for very real pain, for very real psychological trauma, as fentanyl increasingly um, supplants heroin across North America, you no longer have a way to self-medicate that pain. Yeah, that's actually very profoundly sad. I, I hadn't thought about the psychological effect. I've also heard that fentanyl just puts people's lights out, like they don't get that um, sort of warm embrace, that sort of feeling like, oh, okay, I can breathe, I'm at home, like I'm okay here. Like it's just put the plunger down and then like almost like black out for. Yeah. All these anecdotal stories you hear about like, Oh, you know, I, uh, people, people will always want the strongest substance out there. And the only people who have ever uh, told me in interviews, like, yeah, I like fentanyl or I want it. You know, they're that young kid with a couple of friends with an earshot and he's trying to puff out his chest and impress them. Um, I have never in five or six years now ever 
interviewed um, an older drug user or you know a real maintenance user who says they like fentanyl. Uh, not one. Nobody has ever told me they like that drug. Um, it is too strong. It knocks them out or it hits them into an overdose. Um, it, it doesn't have the warmth that comes with heroin that, that we were just speaking of. It's it's not um, a nice drug, and nobody is less um, is less happy about it supplanting heroin. Um, than drug users. That's interesting. Uh, I have not encountered that either in my reporting. Anybody saying they like fentanyl, but uh, I have talked to Dan Sicaroni, and he has said he's encountered some people that really do like fentanyl. Um, they, it's usually older heroin users, people who've been doing it for decades, and they actually can get high from it or something like that. You'd have to talk to him more about it. But I wonder if that is part of the reason why we're seeing a shift to stimulants. Uh, Cicerone talks about this a lot lately about how, you know, currently we're in the third wave of the opioid, well, the overdose crisis. We're in the third wave of the overdose crisis and we're moving into the fourth wave, which is stimulants. And if a lot of people, uh, don't like fentanyl and it's not giving them that self-medication, uh, that they are seeking, that makes sense to me why they would be switching to things like meth or cocaine. If you can switch, you know, of, of course, many people who are, are physically dependent um, would have a lot of trouble with that transition. Um, it is happening to some extent in Canada as well, I should mention. Our, our methamphetamine numbers are going up and up um, the last few years. Um, I guess what we're, re we're really talking about here is, is something Zach mentioned um, a minute ago, um, safe supply, um, regulated supply. Um, I, I know that sounds scary to some people, but I think if you accept three straightforward facts, and I think they are facts, one, that people will always use drugs and always have, at least some people always will, and two, that North America's drug supply is now so adulterated, so contaminated with fentanyl and increasingly and the more dangerous uh, cousin of fentanyl, carfentanyl. If, if you accept those two facts, I, I don't know what we do but legalize and regulate. And I know that that sounds scary, and I think if we're honest about it, we have to acknowledge that it's going to create new problems. Um, but I don't know what other solution there is to this continent's uh, overdose crisis. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a good place to to wrap up because I think you're right. That is the situation we're in. And I think it really will take uh, a revolution in thinking about these issues in order for something like a safe supply to happen. And I'm finishing up writing a, a piece right now that is uh, that and I and, and for that piece, I had to listen to a recent um, Senate Judiciary hearing on fentanyl analogs. And, you know, all these senators and policymakers in Washington, D.C., they're like spinning in circles playing cat and mouse. They're trying to emergency schedule every single fentanyl analog under the sun and it's just like wake the fuck up when has scheduling a substance ever led to a reduction in use and it like these uh very old school drug war supply side interventions are the go-to move and on and in this hearing there was not one physician not one toxicologist, not one treatment provider, definitely no drug users. It was the witnesses called to testify. It was someone from the DEA, someone from the Department of Justice, and someone from the Office of the National Control of Drug Policy. 
And it's like these are three enforcement agencies setting the policy on the deadliest crisis in history. And we're spinning in circles. We're, we're, we're going to see more mandatory minimums. We're going to see more emergency scheduling. And none of this is going to uh, lead to anyone getting better. And it's just, yeah, it's infuriating. The emphasis seems to be on doing something as opposed to actually accomplishing something. Um, I think when policymakers, um, you know, propose and and, and vote and and pass uh, pass these ideas into legislation, um, they need to ask themselves with real honesty, what is this going to accomplish? Um, you're just starting to see that happen in Canada. Um, we are seeing healthcare providers. Um, increasingly lead uh, conversations about solutions. And um, the, the top doctors um, in Canada's three largest cities, uh, Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, uh, are now openly advocating uh, for decriminalization and for uh, talk of legal debate, for public debates of legalization. Uh, I think that's encouraging, but while we're further ahead in the US, we're still a long way off. I think we need healthcare providers and, and uh, you know, people who honestly see this as a healthcare issue um, taking a stronger leadership roles. Well, thank you, Travis, for coming on the show. Uh, people can find you on Twitter at T Lupic, L U P I C K. And you're the author of Fighting for Space. Fighting for Space. Uh, is there anything else you want to let people know? I just want to thank you uh, for having me on. Um, yeah, the name of the book is Fighting for Space and T Lupic, uh, Twitter uh, slash T Lupic. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Travis. We're, we're big fans over here. Thanks again for having me.